0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, well-being speaker, educator and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Before we dive into my conversation with Danielle Miller all about respectful relationships, I wanted to let you know about my Thought of the Week newsletter. The Thought of the Week concept first started when I was a graduate teacher back in 2008. Each Monday, I would share a quote with my Year 7 home group, and we would discuss the meaning of the quote. Then colleagues started to ask if I could send it to them too. And 14 years on, I am still sending out a weekly email. It's evolved now, and I share my thoughts, what I'm loving, what I'm working on, and upcoming events. This year, I'll be running a number of free well-being masterclasses. Over the school holidays, I ran a free masterclass all about energy management, and I shared four practical ways to move from feeling exhausted to energised, and participants loved it. So if you're not on the thought of the week list, press pause now, go to the episode description, and subscribe. Now on to today's conversation. In this conversation, I have the joy of chatting with Danielle Miller, Danielle is a co-founder and CEO of Enlightened Education, Australia's leading provider of in-school workshops, and works with more than twenty-five thousand young people each year in Australia, New Zealand, and Southeast Asia. Danielle is a director of education at Women's Community Shelters, and she initiated their Walk the Talk School Program and their new corporate domestic and family violence literacy program. In two thousand and twenty-one, Walk the Talk. Corporate programs were delivered to over 100 partners and directors at KPMG nationally with outstanding engagement. In 2021, she was awarded the Medal of Order of Australia for her service to education to women and to youth. In this conversation, we discuss what does a respectful relationship feel like, the various forms of domestic and family abuse, the obvious and subtle signs of abuse, and so much more. As a heads up, parts of this conversation are really hard to hear. If you would like to discuss this further, please know that help is available. one respect is a 24-hour national sexual assault family and domestic violence counselling line for any Australian who has experienced or is at risk of family and domestic violence and or sexual assault. The number is one 737732 I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Danielle Miller. Danielle, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. What a joy.
0: I have followed your work for years and you are a complete pioneer in this space. And when I think of you, I think of you as a real advocate for young people and providing them with the skills and the strategies to deal with their reality. You're someone that's really honest and frank and so warm. And so this conversation, I think, is going to really highlight the work you've done for years and years and years.
1: Well, thank you so much. That's a beautiful introduction. A few things stand out. One, that, I, that I've that i been doing this for a while, and that is very true. I actually founded my company, Enlightened Education, 18 years ago, um, and I have been talking about respectful relationships for that long as well. And I love that you mentioned that I'm a strong advocate for young people, because I definitely am. I'm team youth, uh, and rightly so. I think they need more advocates, less shaming, less finger pointing, less blaming, more people that will talk with them, not just at them and I do like that you mentioned I am truthful and frank because I am both of those things and again you know so important in my work with teenagers I learned very early on that they have incredible bullshit radars so if when I'm speaking to them I am being inauthentic it is all over so half of the secret I think to my success in connecting with teens is that what they see is what they get and it's very real and honest and that matters.
0: So true. Teens can almost smell if you're lying. They know you're lying before you walk in the door.
1: A hundred percent. And that's why it's such a privilege to come in as a guest presenter because you can be more authentic and real when i was back in the classroom of course there have to be some of those professional boundaries some of those professional filters and even if you would love to you know pause your lesson on jane austen and get into a great debate about gaslighting that's not always appropriate and nor can you draw on your personal stories but yet we know that that is how we learn through the sharing of stories Look at the impact of Rosie Batty's story on the nation, Grace Tame's story. So what I can do when I work with young people as a guest is share stories and that's how you engage not just the head but the heart.
0: Talking about stories, I'd love to know from you, Danielle, how did you get to where you are today? What's your story?
1: oh my gosh that's a that's it's a long and convoluted one i'll try and give you the short version huh so i began my career as a high school teacher I uh, realized very early on that despite my grand intentions and creativity that my students were not going to listen to my lessons on poetry or grammar if they didn't feel safe in their homes or if they hadn't eaten that morning. So I really quickly became much more interested in student wellbeing actually. And I worked predominantly with students at risk and ran a number of campaigns for them around mentoring and entrepreneurial skills, the value of enterprise education and service learning, and then decided that I wanted to set up my own company to have all of the conversations that I knew really mattered, but couldn't always happen for some of the reasons I've mentioned in a classroom setting with teachers. So I set up Enlighten, from there I've written books, I've written five books, was a parenting expert for Channel 9 for a hot minute there. I had my own column in the Daily Telly, I write cover features, set up a refuge in my local area, a shelter for women and children fleeing violence. And I'm now also the Director of Education for Women's Community Shelters. So I support the work of our 10 shelters and we're about to, hopefully this year, open another 10. I mean, sad that we need to, but vital that those life-changing services are there if there are women and children who indeed need to flee their homes. And we know that there absolutely are.
0: Wow. You have done so much and contributed in such meaningful ways and I know for myself I really look forward to the weekend newspaper because I can read your article in the Body and Soul and every time I read those articles it really shines through this lived experience that you have with young people in the classroom and women and family at the shelters. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing with the shelters?
1: Yeah I definitely can and I'll add to that Another element of my lived experience, which is relevant to our discussion today, is that like many of your listeners, I have lived experience with domestic violence and family violence. So I was a victim of family violence. My great-grandmother burned me when I was little. I have third-degree burns, and that was something that she did on purpose. And I also had a very violent dad, so I grew up in a house experiencing that and watching that as a little girl, feeling quite powerless. I guess I've channeled some of that powerlessness into being part of the solution. So, Women's Community Shelters are an amazing organization. Like, again, many of your listeners, I remember sitting there one day about to write yet another column about a woman who had lost her life at the hands of a man who once professed to love her. And as I sat there thinking about putting, you know, something together, I realized I had to move beyond words into action. And so as fate would have it, this is often the case, isn't it? I saw an article in our local paper that there was a community group hoping to open a shelter in my local area. Went across to that meeting, found myself at one stage putting my hand up and saying, I'd love to join this board to set this shelter up. But what I'd like to do is make it my mission to shut it down. And what I really meant in that moment is that I really wanted to think creatively about education that could stop this cycle that could bring about generational change. So I uh, ran a pilot study with the local boys college, Oak Hill College, and asked them to adopt our shelter, which they did, and they have adopted it since it opened five years ago. And they do incredible work. Actually, just this year they did some fundraising and purchased the most beautiful, huge dollhouse you can imagine with all of this gorgeous furniture. And at the top, you wouldn't believe this, it makes me weep. You know, they have a little plaque that said the house that Oak Hill built. And there it sits in our shelter for all the children to play with. And there's so much joy to be had in knowing that young men in the community are stepping up and wanting to be part of Part of change and wanting to break that cycle of male rage and despair and and the ugliness that that can create.
0: And it really highlights what's possible when we open the door for young people to walk through.
1: Yes, and and actually that particular program that I run out for Women's Community Shelters is called Walk the Talk because it's about moving beyond talk into action. So I talked before about the importance of engaging the head and the heart in education, but we should also engage the hand. So how do you provide service? Once you have learned, how do you action that learning? So I love Walk the Talk and that's, yeah, we've been working with 18 schools in New South Wales about that and we're launching our first school in Melbourne this year as well, which we matched with a local shelter in Victoria, which is exciting. So I've been doing lots of that and also running for Enlightened Education our um, two-hour workshop, When Love Hurts on Respectful Relationships and Consent. And I think that body of work, you know, just has at its heart hope that through education, and I'm a huge believer in education and the power it has to change culture, that we can, we can turn this ship around. Yeah, because the statistics aren't good enough. They haven't been good enough for a long while. And we need to shake stuff
0: up. And I am like you, I am very hopeful that education can break that cycle just to be aware of things, to have conversations and to have conversations with groups like yours that understand the nuance of these discussions. And it's not simple to have these discussions.
1: It isn't for a few reasons. Firstly, they are very nuanced and sensitive. But the other thing is that I think is really important for listeners to understand is that when we are talking to young people about respectful relationships and consent, we're not just speaking about relationships they might view with the adults in their home they're not just observing domestic violence with older adults statistically we know that many of them actually have that lived experience right now in their own teen relationships so we know that shockingly out of the age group 12 to 20 in australia one in three young people will report elements of their relationship has been abusive So one in three young people between 12 and 20 will report their relationship as elements of abuse. Of that cohort, girls are four times more likely than boys to report that they have actually been physically hurt or felt frightened as a result of that abuse. So I can tell you that when I'm working with young people and we're talking about respectful relationships, the lights are going on where they are questioning their own young relationships and their own behavior in those. You know i had a I had a young girl this week say to me, "How do I change if I'm hearing this and I realize?" that I am too jealous in my relationship and I can be controlling as a result of that. And that was such a beautiful, honest, open, brave question to ask for us to help her work through.
0: To have that moment of insight, that's where action can take place. Once we become aware of these things about ourselves and others, then that opens the door to potentially a whole new way of being.
1: Absolutely. Because we assume that adolescent relationships are pretty harmless, that it's sort of puppy love. And in fact, that's far from true. We know that they are pivotal. In, in, in a sense, they set the tone for future relationships, right? So if your early experiences of relationship have been dysfunctional, then you are likely to repeat that pattern. In fact, when we have women come into our shelter system, I spoke to the caseworkers who work directly with the women who come into our system, and I said to them, what percentage of women that come in now as adults in very serious abusive relationships where they need to flee their home, what percentage would you say had first relationships that were dysfunctional? And I've been told adamantly, 100%, that often the first few relationships they've had have had elements of abuse as well. And in a sense, that behaviour then becomes normalised right so you repeat that pattern unless you get told that's what it is unless you get told that is abuse this is how you need to set boundaries around this this is what a respectful relationship should look and feel like because think about it how would our teenagers really even know what a respectful relationship looks and feels like if they haven't seen it in their own homes perhaps because they certainly aren't going to see it in popular culture are they you know you think about maths and all of those other relationship and dating shows and it's all high drama yes which makes sense I guess, you know, that's entertaining. I don't find it entertaining, but people do find it entertaining. It's not going to be entertaining just watching people have a bit of a cuddle on the lounge in their rug boots and ask each other if they'd like a cup of tea, you know. <laughs> that's That's probably not going to attract quite as many viewers. So, you know, we can't assume that they just instinctively know what healthy looks and feels like.
0: Well, if I take myself back to being a teen at school, I had absolutely zero idea. I was fortunate that I had parents that displayed really healthy relationships, really respectful. I know that that's not the norm now. I was very fortunate I had that. However, with my peer group, I can't think of any that was respectful or really that healthy. The only thing was if you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, as long as you had a relationship, that's the goal. It's not about the quality. It's not about how you felt, the impact on you. It was just have one. That's the whole main aim.
1: And that's so, so perceptive because we also don't teach our young people how to be alone, how to be single. You know, culturally, particularly for young women, there's so much stigma associated with being single. You know, the crazy cat lady, the desperate housewife, you know, whereas males don't perhaps have quite as much stigma around being single. But definitely in high school when we're starting to think about relationships and view ourselves in terms of our sexual desirability, there is status attached to having a partner. And as you say, the quality of that partner isn't something that is discussed quite as often and it isn't just you know in tv shows and in movies there's always been this since we're little girls this cultural cultural perception that we should be intrigued by the bad guy you know the bad boys are the hot boys and even think about the fairy tales we teach our children i mean beauty and the beast if we unpack that the beast rightly named, literally kidnaps Belle from her family home to imprison her in his castle so she can look after him. And the moral of the story is that she is supposed to see through all of that beastly behaviour and indeed love him despite that abuse. And if she loves him, that will transform. Wow, what a dangerous message, huh? It is so dangerous.
0: And then I start to think about all these other stories that we've bought into. I'm thinking about my generation buying into the romance of Carrie and Big, Mr. Big, and the way that he treated Carrie all of these years thinking he will change, he will eventually fall in love with me. If I do things differently, he'll come around.
1: We have this belief that we're therapy for males. Or that it's our job to shape them or make them, not to necessarily be looking for a partner who is our emotional equal or who we can grow emotionally together with. You know, and there's this saying, you know, oh, don't mind a good renovation project when we talk about looking at partners or dating. And this stuff is incredibly damaging. Even love bombing, which is that phenomena when we first meet someone and they come on so strong. You know, we know in the world of domestic and family violence that that's actually a flag that things, are not right that's a flag that perhaps your partner doesn't have appropriate boundaries but yet culturally we're told oh he's just so into you you should be incredibly flattered by all of that attention it's really hard for us to unpack all of the cultural scripts we've been held um, told all of those narratives and indeed rewrite those rules to create something that's far more mutually respectful and far safer.
0: So how do we rewrite those rules? What are we looking for? What is a respectful relationship?
1: That's such a great question. And it's one of the very first questions that I ask young people when I work with them. And it's good to hear their answers. They do mention things like trust and respect. And as I say to them, you know, when we're talking about to relationships, it even isn't just in our romantic relationships either. It's in our friendships. Now, we can have toxic friends who belittle us, who put us down, who manipulate us, who isolate us. It's in our work, with our work colleagues. We can have work colleagues who gaslight us or who erode our self-esteem. We ask them to unpack what do you think a healthy relationship is like. They do mention things like trust and respect, But we also talk about how it is someone who will allow you to grow and change. It is someone who doesn't want to compete with you, but will cheer you on. It is someone who you feel safe with, who you feel comfortable with. Indeed, someone who will give you space. It doesn't have to be this intense, entwined relationship, which again, culturally we're told it probably should be. And so I think that's all really important. I like to say to teenagers that to me, love is helium. It rises. Everything lifts and Elevates when it's genuine love. It doesn't weigh us down. It doesn't hold us back. We don't feel tethered by it or burdened by it. And I think that's quite lovely too. And it is important to reflect on what works, not just focus on what isn't working so we can celebrate the good things and seek more of those.
0: And have a picture for that because not many people have a blueprint of that helium feeling of being lifted up. I remember when my husband and I got together, it was the first relationship that I had. That it was easy. There was no drama. I didn't have to check with my friends. What does this mean? Is he keen? Is he not keen? It was easy. It was mutual. And a friendship just grew and grew and grew. And with that growth, also, I grew in my confidence and sense of sharing with somebody else. And it can be quite magical.
1: Yes. And what you're describing there is not something that culturally we're told is hot. You know, just that nice, comfy, easy feeling, no drama, no games, we're Court, that it should be oh don't call until the third date and you know like it's almost like a chess game that we're supposed to play with this other person which is just incredibly exhausting at the end of the day and often quite inauthentic. So I love that you know that was your experience of love. I think it is important to to present different narratives and to ask young people to really think about what serves them but also to fall in love with themselves a little right like back to that idea of being comfortable being single. So much of what you've described there, I've been single now for 10 years, are are feelings that I would have. Like I feel comfy just in my own company. I've learned how to do that. Uh, I know that I don't need another one to be whole, that I'm already whole. But these are not easy lessons to learn. You have to really actively swim against the stream to learn how to be comfortable and secure and to love yourself yourself. And when you do, if you need a partner, that's a gorgeous bonus, but you don't need one to feel complete.
0: Yes. I remember getting to that stage in my life after a few different relationships that weren't all that healthy and getting to that point of, I'd prefer to be single and happy with my life than in a dysfunctional relationship that's filled with drama and making me constantly second guess my worth.
1: And also it can be lonelier if you're in a relationship where you don't feel known and understood. You know, I've been lonelier when I've been part of a couple than I have been since I've been single because that loneliness, that feeling of not being understood, not being not being seen by your partner, that cuts deep.
0: It cuts really deep and it's really interesting that you brought up love bombing earlier because I remember in one of my relationships having that intense fireworks of, I can't believe that he loves me. This is amazing. I was young, so I didn't have a whole perspective on it. But I hear this all the time from young and older people that it needs to have spark. It needs to be intense. That's what it has to be. And what we're starting to learn now is that's not always that healthy.
1: No, and, and, and it can be. I mean, if you meet someone and you're really attracted to them, there can be fireworks and sparks. But if the person you're meeting is, I guess, pushing you beyond your comfortable boundaries, is trying to fast-track things, fast-track the intimacy, fast-track the relationship, don't get sucked into that hype. If it's a mutual thing and you're both feeling all of that firework and all of that spark and you're both running towards, you know, the helium together, fabulous. But if you feel that you're kind of being dragged along behind someone else, that's when you need to put the brakes on a little bit. And if they're right, they're the right person, they'll respect that.
0: Yes, I guess that's the test, isn't it, the first test when wow. we start to put in boundaries and how they respond to that.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting to note that, you know, even the most destructive of relationships don't start off that way. No one tends to be abusive on a first date. These things creep up gradually. And that's one of the reasons why it can be so hard to identify when you are in an abusive relationship yourself because there's been this slow drip of denigrating who you are and making you doubt yourself and doubt your own confidence and this can be very difficult to see it for what it is perhaps often there will be seven serious incidents of abuse on average before someone will recognize that they are in a a difficult relationship and when they'll reach out perhaps to a peer or a friend to offer help it can take some time to process
0: And that's why I think conversations like these and the programs that you run in schools are so important because sharing stories, sharing signs to look for just plants that seed for all of us to think, hmm, that's that love bombing maybe. So what are some other obvious signs that we can all look out for when it comes to relationships?
1: Look, I think what I'd like to talk about is some of the different types of abuse because we are all familiar with the physical, right? But we are so familiar with that that I think if there is no physical abuse, we can fall into the trap of thinking that there is therefore no abuse, So even women who will come into our shelter, who may have had partners, who have isolated them from friends and family, who have used money on their credit card, you know, to rack up gambling bills, who have tracked them on their mobile phone, who dictate what they can and can't wear, will say things to us like, yeah, but he's never raised a hand to me. And they almost say that as a disclaimer, that what I'm experiencing can't be abusive because there is no physical element to it. Perpetrators will say this, they'll say, oh, but I've never hit her, I would never raise a hand to her, even if they have actually engaged in some really destructive relationships. So there's there's all sorts of different types of abuse, and some of them are well-known like physical and perhaps verbal abuse, others not so well-known. So financial abuse is one of those ones that I think can be a little less understood. So if you're in a financially abusive relationship, then your partner might be controlling all of the funds. They might just give you an allowance. Or they might go through and audit, you know, your spending and quiz quiz you on that. And this doesn't matter how much money you might earn. I remember speaking to a survivor of financial abuse who was earning over $200,000 a year. Yet her partner would go through her account and if she'd spent over $15 on lunch, he would fly into a rage, you know, and accuse her of of trying to send them broke, even though he was earning over $200,000 a year as well. So they were a very wealthy couple, but that makes no difference. This stuff breaks through social barriers, through race, through religion, through socioeconomic backgrounds. So there's financial abuse. That also might be that sexually transmitted debt, STDs, where your partner is is putting, racking up debt on credit cards that you're not aware of, or perhaps taking out second mortgages on the home that you're not aware of. You may have signed the contract without really understanding what you were signing. It might mean that they prohibit you from work so you don't have any financial independence of your own, which makes you more and more dependent on them. There is coercive control. There's been so much discussion about this in the media here in New South Wales because at the moment it isn't illegal or there's been a big push that it should be made illegal. So in a coercive control relationship, your partner may isolate you from others, dictate what you can and can't wear, tell you what you should be doing socially, might track you on your car. So they're really controlling you, but yet that's not a legal behaviour. If you go to the police and say, look, my partner won't let me wear what I want to wear, he won't let me see my friends anymore, he insists on knowing where I'm going after work, at the moment they couldn't really help you. But it's really serious because that pattern of behaviour when sustained actually has the highest correlation with homicide, even if there's been no physical violence before. So if you think about Hannah Clark, gorgeous um, Queensland mother who was murdered by her ex-partner and her children, uh, and her children were murdered as well by him, he had never raised a hand to her, but yet there'd been high levels of coercive control before he struck. And so when women come into our shelter network, when we go through to ask them what's been happening, if they identify for us strong elements of coercive control, even if there's been no physical violence before, we know even if they don't yet, that they actually are at high risk of being hurt if they try and leave this relationship. So they will need support and safety in order to do that. In fact, in over 95% of cases where there is a homicide for domestic violence, there have been very high levels of coercive control prior to that moment. So that's another one. Um, Often we hear about damage to property as a way of controlling your partner. So, you know, I've never raised a hand to you. Yeah, but you punch the wall near me, which can be absolutely terrifying. Often threats to pets. You know, if you leave me, I'll I'll kill the dog or threats to hit the cat. Animals can be used too to trap people. So you imagine if you've got three dogs and a horse and your partner's abusive, You can't just go to your friend's house with the three dogs and a horse to stay safe, particularly if he's threatened your animal. So that can be used as a tool to keep people. The other types of abuse that I think are perhaps not as widely known are things like digital surveillance and this is something i see a lot in teenage relationships where there's abuse and that might be where your partner insists on having your password to all of your social media accounts so they can read and check on messages they might be quizzing you about who's this that liked this don't post this picture they might be messaging you multiple times a day and requiring you to reply instantly to those texts so i interviewed a young woman who's now 22 but she shared with me her abusive relationship that began when she was 14 and she met a boy on Facebook. And I know this will sound strange to adults, but it doesn't to teenagers. She went out with him for two years, but even though in that time, she only saw him in real life a handful of times, most of it was conducted online. And he would text her, you know, 30, 40 times a day. What are you doing? Who are you sitting next to? Why aren't you home yet? Are you on the bus? Just getting flying into these jealous rages about boys she was speaking to. And, you know, She felt completely consumed by that. Her phone really became his tool of manipulation, his tool of monitoring her. And then, of course, as we've heard so much in the media about in the last year, there's sexual abuse. And that's not necessarily just strangers. There can be sexual assault in relationship. Consent needs to be freely given it's reversible it needs to be enthusiastic it needs to be specific and and interestingly not that long ago I mean I was born in 1969 up until 1970 in Australia there was no such thing as rape in marriage you were married to someone they had the right to your body whenever they wanted things have changed there but there are still some misunderstandings around that well I would argue there's not actually misunderstandings people probably probably know damn well what they're doing is not right but definitely we see even in ongoing long-term relationships, that there can be sexual assault.
0: Danielle, you have highlighted such a broad range of ways in which this can seep into our relationships. And I think that is so important because you're right, a lot of people come back to that narrative of, I haven't been hit, or there's no physical, so... Mm. There's No Problem. And a show that I watched last year that really got me thinking was on Netflix and it was called Made.
1: Yeah, and that's based on a true story, yeah.
0: And I was... Fascinated watching just how intense the situations can be from just the small things, taking the car away, once the car away, or oh, you can't do that. And then there's not enough money for this. And just slowly, slowly, slowly. But there was no scene in that show that I can recall that was any yeah. physical abuse.
1: That's correct, and definitely there was financial abuse in that, wasn't there? Absolutely, where she had no funds of her own, and of course that limits your option to leave. So you know, then we get into when I talk to young people, we talk about that the victim blaming culture we live in, where that question is asked: Why wouldn't they just leave? So there we are already, we've identified a key reason why often we don't leave a relationship. Perhaps we're financially bound to that person. And so the decision might be for you, do I leave my abusive partner and then the kids and I have to sleep in a car? Will that be better? Or can I try and muddle through here? Will that be better? I might not leave my partner because... I am too emotionally exhausted. He has completely drained me of my resilience and my capacity to think about moving on. And imagine, too, if your partner is gaslit you. So if your partner is gaslighting you, they're trying to convince you that you're crazy, really, that you doubt your own sense of self and your own sanity. So saying things to you like, you know, you're so hysterical, you exaggerate. Why do you always carry on like this? You know, I'm not that bad. It's just that you're really depressed. And so if you've had these messages all the time, you might think no one's going to believe you. No one's going to care. Maybe it is my fault that he's like this. These are the messages that start to sink in. Often partners might not let you work or have that access to other people. So in our shelter network, we have found COVID has been really problematic because You've got families trapped at home together where they don't even have that escape of the workplace. Now that we can work from home, you'd better believe many perpetrators are insisting their partners work from home and they then have no connection or no outside outlet for some of that. So it's been really difficult and throw into the mix that we know people are drinking more heavily at home as well. So a lot of young people have been in homes where they have witnessed really bad violence over the last couple of years.
0: A part of my heart's just breaking as we're having yeah. this conversation because the issue is so big and it's so complex and it's so nuanced. And also the other part of my heart is saying education makes such a difference. Having this conversation in this moment, even though it's really hard to hear, like some of these things that you're yeah. saying, it's hard to hear as I picture women and children and men in these cycles marinating in this day in and day out and also picturing that generational cycle if this is your experience just how exhausting and how much it can just rob you of your sense of worth it is
1: really heartbreaking It is. But can I say, when I deliver this content, we focus on explaining all of this. You don't want to water this stuff down. We need to know this. But you can also do it in a way that's actually uplifting and motivating. Because what you want to do is shift people from the darkness you're feeling now into a space where they feel capable of making change and speaking up and equipping them to know how. You know, what are the warning signs your friend might be in trouble? How would you handle a disclosure? What kind of resources are out there for you to access? Understanding the gendered patterns of violence. All of these things are really empowering. So I got a message last night on social media from a beautiful teacher who watched me in action with her students yesterday. And I'll just read it to you. I'll just pull it up on my Facebook because I wasn't expecting to read it, but it fits in so beautifully what you've just said. And she has said... It's just perfect. Hey Danielle, the girls absolutely loved your talk today. They felt so empowered and they are ready to shake some shit up. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Shake some shit up. You go, girls. And that's what you want to do is create this sense of not being disempowered and being a victim. Because who wants to feel like that, right? But feeling empowered and knowing how to be a change maker and how to be an ally. And getting the boys on side in this conversation too, because we do know that males can experience emotional abuse, they can experience physical abuse in relationships, although in most cases where males experience physical abuse and sexual abuse in relationships, the perpetrator's another male. We know that these issues absolutely impact on members of the LGBTQI community, and that's a really important thing to talk to young people about. And in fact, within that community, there are other elements of abuse that, you know, we might not consider such as identity abuse. So that might be where your partner says, "If you leave me, I'm going to out you to everyone." So you feel even more trapped. Or they might say, "If you um, leave me, then I will tell everyone at school what we did together last weekend," and so you feel more and more trapped and controlled into maintaining that relationship. You know, if you're a young person and you're not out to your parents. It's really hard to go and tell them that your boyfriend is abusing you or your girlfriend's abusing you if you're same sex and they don't know that that's your orientation yet. There are definite complexities that we that young people need help unpacking. But I am really hopeful. Education is part of it; it's it's a big part of it, I believe. But so too is the work that shelters do. You know, we do need in the meantime until we create shift and we shake shit up we do need safe places where people at risk can go to receive that support and we get you know women as young as 16 needing to come into our shelter system in fact the shelter that i helped found in my local suburb called the sanctuary here in Northwest Sydney. The first woman that ever arrived on our doorstep was 17 and she had a newborn baby and her boyfriend had badly beaten her and the police brought her to us to help heal her and and keep her safe. So we can't turn a blind eye to how serious some of these issues are and education is really critical but so too is that practical support that those who've lived experience really need.
0: Yes, being able to provide that practical support for people who need it and also provide preventative education in the community, families having the conversations, schools having the conversations. And I look back now and if we had an open conversation at school about these are some red flags, these are some green flags, I think I would have got out of relationships much quicker than
1: when I did. (laughs) I'd be like, "Yes." yes, I joke that I am the relationship ruiner because often at the end of our workshops, you know, teenage girls will come up and say, my boyfriend is so dropped or or they might say, you know, I need to really rethink my taste in boys because, yeah, I think I'm actually following some pretty dangerous scripts here. And I love that. I love that they have that capacity because there is this incredible collective energy in the space, right? Like I can't even tell you it's so glorious because everyone realises they are so much more alike than they are different. You know, I have the girls all like, amen, sister, and high-fiving each other and because they can share their experiences with sexism and they can call that out. And one of the things we do too is like, all right, so we're talking about the pointy end of the iceberg here with sexual assault and domestic violence, but underneath that is the culture that allows sexist comments to go unquestioned that objectifies, you know, women and girls' bodies and how do we call this stuff out? And I love hearing them talk about that and talk about when they've done it well. And I love hearing their teachers get involved in that conversation. I was at a school recently. Oh, it makes me cry when I think that this was such a moment. And I was with a group of young women, U10s, an amazing teacher put her hand up and she said, I know you've just asked wins a time we've seen sexism handled really well. But I want to share with the girls a time when I saw it handled poorly. And she said, and it was with me, actually, she said, I watched another teacher at this school speak to a female student in a very sexist and degrading way about her uniform length. And I said nothing, much to my deep shame. She said, I did go and complain to the headmistress about how I heard this teacher speak to a student. But in that moment, I should have stood up for her and I should have said, you don't need to talk to her and about her sexuality in relation to her skirt length. But I chose to be silent and she said, and no, I want you guys to know that will never happen again. I've got your back. And you just heard this cheer, you know, erupt in the theatre. And I thought, God, I love that because we do have to be a bit brave in these conversations, right, and admit that we don't always get it right, but when we know better we can do better.
0: And I love bringing in this idea of courage. Yeah. Because it takes a lot of courage when we've been conditioned from generation by generation to not rock the boat. Yes. To just smile, make sure that nobody else is uncomfortable. And so it does take courage to move beyond that narrative more to a powerful, hopeful, grounded confidence.
1: Absolutely. And we need to teach, and I do, you know, assertiveness, and we give them scripts. Here's some phrases you can use. Here's some approaches that you can use to tackle this. And it doesn't have to be about anger or humiliation or shaming someone. It can be a call in rather than a call out, right? But we need to provide some scripts for this, for all of this. Even if you hear a disclosure um, from a friend, you know, how do you handle that? What are some key phrases you can use? How do you connect with them and then redirect them? professional services. None of this stuff is intuitive and none of this stuff is explicitly taught. And my goodness, it is exciting that we now can have these conversations in schools because schools are open and ready to have them as well.
0: And I think that's because of the courage of people who have been willing to share their lived experience. Earlier, you spoke about Rosie Batty and I remember clearly where I was when I read her book. Yeah. Yeah. Because every time I finished a chapter, I had tears and in my head I was thinking, you can't be serious. Mm. Cannot believe the depths of this story. And then when I finished that book, it really brought home to me how important it is that people share their lived experience. So when you hear comments like, she should have just left, Mm. you think you have no idea, Mm." no idea about the context, the difficulty people face, all these layers of abuse that you've highlighted for us. And so when people have the courage to share their stories, it gives other people the courage to make different choices. That's why I'm really hopeful at this time how many brave, courageous people are sharing their stories so other people have the courage to take that next step.
1: And I think also that can be healing for them because they've often been told no one will believe you and no one will care. So when we do believe and we do care, that in itself can be very healing as well. That can be part of that healing process. And it puts perpetrators on notice, doesn't it? Actually, we will listen and we will care. We will believe. So I think that's yeah it's it's a really powerful thing we must center survivors voices and I do hope that schools that look at you know getting people in to talk about respectful relationships do think about partnering with organizations that have that frontline firsthand experience and who center the voices of survivors and and center their experiences and their feedback too into this dialogue that's really important.
0: Oh it's so important because it's an area that we really need to do well. Mm and to do with an open heart and an open mind so we can invite as many people into the conversation as possible. And one of the themes that keep flying through my head as we're having this conversation is this sense of power and how education really is giving the power back to make choices about who we are in relationship with and how that's impacting our lives. Yes,
1: I think that this agenda is also A tricky one for teachers to tackle themselves. Some may feel very comfortable and that's great, but I do also appreciate that there will be some teachers who wouldn't feel comfortable about being really authentic and real about this because they may have their own lived experiences and find this content very triggering and distressing. And that's legitimate. So I would hate to see teachers mandated to teach this if they didn't feel comfortable in doing so because I would hate for it to re-traumatise them. Similarly, we know statistically there will be perpetrators in schools and I would hate to see perpetrators deliver this content as well.
0: There's such good things to keep in mind when we're talking about respectful relationships. So if someone's listening to this conversation, Danielle, and thinking, hmm, um, a few things have been raised that are making me feel a little bit uncomfortable or I've noticed for the first time X, Y, Z, where can they go next? What's the next step?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And undoubtedly there will be listeners who are feeling those exact things right now. So there are plenty of amazing helplines and support services out there. If you go to womenscommunityshelters.org.au, which is The um, organisation that I'm director of education for. A lot of those will be featured on our homepage. Most of them, I believe, are New South Wales specific, but if they Google services for their own state around relationship and domestic violence, they'll be able to find plenty of support services there as well. Depending on the age of your listener, I'm assuming they're mostly adults, but there are some excellent services for young people too, including Kids Helpline. Not everyone knows they can take calls for people up to the age of 25 and q life do incredible work with the lgbtqi community so if speaking to someone from that community is important to you about relationship because you're from that community then they can be a great resource too well,
0: it's so good to know there are so many resources out there and i'll make sure i link them all in the show notes great if you could tell all of us just one thing when it came to relationships what would it be
1: I don't know if I could narrow myself to just one thing. I would have too much to say. But, uh, look, I guess I would say that that love elevates. Love, Love is helium. And if your love is not helium, if it feels like some other poisonous gas then you will be believed. You will be what's, you know, what's happening to you is not acceptable. It's not right. And if you are questioning it, then you are right to question it. Follow those instincts and reach out. And if the first time you reach out, you aren't believed and you don't get support, then reach out again. You know, the culture is changing. We are becoming more aware, more savvy and more open to these conversations. And we need to be.
0: Yes, that is such beautiful advice. So to wrap up this incredible conversation, Danielle, I have learned so much and I'm sure listeners have learned so much too and I really, really thank you for that. I would like to invite you to finish four sentences. Yes,
1: I'm excited. Please, please do.
0: I am inspired by?
1: Young women. No surprises there when life feels hard oh I cuddle my rescue dogs they give me such a sense of love and connection and I wish we didn't underestimate all of the kinds of love and affection we can have in life we elevate romantic love above all others but there are lots of connections that can fill our life with deep affection and satisfaction and for me that's my babies.
0: (laughs) Oh, so I'm sure your babies were keeping good company last year.
1: Oh well, they were. They both actually were COVID rescue dogs. So yes, they have been superb in that respect. I've got a gorgeous rescue coolie, which is a type of uh, working dog, and a greyhound. Yeah, they're perfect. An underrated skill is boundary setting particularly for women we need to teach our girls not to be sugar spice and everything nice not to be compliant and unheard but instead to use their voices and to speak up
0: so true and so
1: powerful and i am looking forward to shutting our shelters down you know like will there be a day where we can close our shelter doors and all of the staff at women's community shelters will be made redundant god i hope so and that's what i am going to be working very hard towards
0: Danielle thank you so much for this conversation but more broadly than that thank you for the work that you're doing and for chipping away at this space for years and years I feel like you've been out there as a pioneer in this space in education and people are just starting to catch up now so thank you so much and thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast.
1: I have loved it thank you so much it's been a joy.
0: Knowing incredible people like Danielle are out in the world doing this important work makes me so hopeful for the future. To learn more about Danielle and Enlightened Education, visit enlightenededucation.com. There you will see the range of life-changing student workshops they deliver. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to complete two sentences. Number one, I want to remember. And number two, the action I am going to take in the next 24 hours to support my well being is... The School of Wellbeing podcast is a labour of love and takes a lot of time, energy and money to create for you free each week. If you'd like to support the show and keep it going, please rate and review on iTunes and Spotify and share with your family, friends and colleagues. You can find all the links for this episode by visiting openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 32. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.